morning, you guys. Good morning, TLC. It's always good to see you, and it's always good to come back and spend time with you. I always feel so energized and happy when I leave TLC. I have no idea what that's all about. <clears throat> but it's great to be with you. I even, I, my, if I haven't met you before, my name is Gary Burge. I teach at Calvin Seminary, and uh, I'm a habitual visitor back here. So it's always great to come back and just renew friendship with so many people. So we have been working through the book of James, right? For the last four or five weeks. Uh, this is an intense letter. I'm just saying, it is an, it's really intense. You know, James, he's the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Um, and I think if you were to summarize his attitude was, he has some serious concerns about how we grow inside of the church. He is like a New Testament life coach, but he's an intense, really intense life coach. He's kind of like having a life coach that slaps you around once in a while. Like, really? Don't it? No, you have to. So he uses language, which is severe. He hates superficial answers to tough questions. He really does. But intense, indeed he is. It kind of makes me think of, he's like, he's like if Torin threw back six Red Bulls and then came up here and did a sermon. That's James. That's what it would be like. Ooh, really? Okay, fine. So anyway, he wants you to have a vibrant spiritual life. You've heard this already. He wants you to be able to absorb life's difficulties. And when you are struggling with things like suffering or trials or healing or whatever, he wants you to be able to take that in stride. He wants us to have robust Christian communities, to be sure. And so therefore, how we conduct ourselves with each other, it's very important to him. He wants us to embrace a genuine vision for the kingdom of God in this place. So therefore, he says, when outsiders look at us, what is it that they see? That's James. I'm kind of summarizing parts of James that you've already studied. But I think if you were to stand back and ask yourself, what is he really about? What is his style? I would say that what James wants to do is make sure that we look under the hood and examine the engine of our spirituality. That's what he wants. And that is why again and again, he takes on cliches. He does not like them. We've got two today and you're going to see them. He is worried that things like discipleship and faith and uh, mission and vision, all of these things are going to become these empty phrases, hollow phrases, cliches, and they become tired, and he doesn't like that, and he speaks very directly to it. James does not do tired very well. He really doesn't. Now, today what we're going to do is look at um, a couple of uh, set of verses in James chapter 2, 14 to 26, and these verses are some of the most controversial in the entire book. They are. Somehow, when I get invited to come to TLC, I end up <laughs> with this kind of stuff. Tara and I need to have a talk. So anyway, I mean, take a look at a couple of these verses. Look at verse 17, chapter 2. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by works, is dead. What in the world? Okay, I'm just letting you know, half of you have dead faith, just so you know. Look at verse 20. You foolish person. That's what I mean by bam. I mean, how often do you go around talking to people and say, you're such a fool? I mean, seriously. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without works is useless? Look at verse 26. 
As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So I've got these kind of, these, these verses inside of James, and I think, okay, so wait a minute. It's all about works, right? And then I have to compare these with something like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Look at this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. You are not saved by works so that anybody can boast. So there you've got Paul saying, you're not saved by works. You're saved by faith. You've got James saying, if you don't have works, well, your faith is really of no use. How do you put all of that together? Christians have been stuck on putting those two things together for centuries. They have. So just so that we can cut to the chase really fast, let me give you the answer, and then I don't have to pile it in at the end. Here's the concise answer how these two go together. When James says works, he's referring to fruit of the Spirit. That's like in Galatians 5.22. When James says works, he's referring to fruit of the Spirit. When Paul refers to works, he's referring to religious activity aimed at earning our salvation. Do you get that? So when Paul says works, he's talking about religious activity that somehow we think we are going to earn our salvation with it. The two men did not have the same dictionary. I can't explain that. Well, I can because they didn't have dictionaries, but anyway, that's a whole other thing. So James wants us to have this thoughtfully examined life. He wants us to see, figure out what is the engine under the hood to see what it is that is driving who we are. So the topic for us today is faith and works and how we put those together. Now, before we can get there, what I want to do is tell you that James belongs to a certain Jewish tradition. James is actually similar to Proverbs, Lamentations, um, the Psalms a little bit. He belongs to the Jewish wisdom tradition. Now, I've made a diagram for you here that gives you some idea of what that looks like. Um, let's just imagine you have some issues, and really everybody knows that there are dumb ways to solve the problem, and there are smart ways to solve the problem. True enough? And nobody really thinks much about it. You just think, oh, here's a problem. Well, that didn't work. Let's try that. No, no. The wisdom tradition in Judaism says there is the way of the wise and there is the way of the foolish. And that's the word that James uses. Foolish is all over the book of Proverbs for that reason. The fool takes a path that leads to loss and eventually death. The wise will take a path that leads to life and it leads to success. Let me just give you an illustration. We do this all the time, but it's unconscious. Do you marry that guy or not? Okay. Huh. Let's flip a coin. Thumbs up, thumbs down. That's stupid. Let's put a picture of them to us on social media and let all my friends vote. And whichever way it goes, then we'll decide about the marriage. Well, yeah, I mean, they're stupid. Of course they are. Seriously, do you have any friends who've done similarly dumb things when they're trying to make decisions? Yes or no? You know it. Anyway, so no, the answer here is, of course, do you marry this guy? You just ask your dad. I'm just kidding. 
No, what you have to do is you have to have wide conversations. This is the wise person. You talk to those people who know you and that person the best, and you search deeply inside of yourself. You pray. That's the route of the wise. All right, I understand that. When I am being tested, if that's the issue, James already covered this one, how do I deal with that? Do I say to myself, oh my gosh, God is putting me on trial. I'm blaming God for what has just happened. I begin to isolate myself and that leads to loss. That's the way of the fool if you find yourself being tested. On the other hand, the way of the wise is, well, um, really see that there's a blessing hidden in here. I just have to discover it. I hold on to God. I hold on to my community. I pray deeply and that's the way of life. See how it goes? It's pretty simple, really. The way of the foolish, the way of the wise, this is all laid out there. If you're feeling discouraged and depressed, okay, what do you do with that? How do you get out of that? Go shopping. Spend money. Buy a new car. It lasts. Well, the trip to the mall lasts for about an hour. The car could last you about a week. But does it work? No, of course not. Distract yourself if you're really depressed. That's a good idea. Drink more. Well, I shouldn't have even said that, but anyway, that's, that's horrible. That's stupid. It's foolish. If you're discouraged, pray. Talk to people who are close to you. Seek counsel. So we understand how these things work, and the wisdom tradition is really happy to say to you, you're a fool, or you're really wise. It's interesting that when you live inside of a community of people, who are your church family like this, or if you're in a college or something and you have your network of friends, it doesn't take long to figure out who is wise and who's a fool. Am I right about that? Think about that for a moment. You really have an idea. Who is it that makes destructive decisions again and again? And who seems to be the person that you want to go to for counsel? All right, so what we have then is this framework, this framework which is called Jewish wisdom, and James is now going to speak into it with a very particular case. So let's look at verse 14 of chapter 2, and here we can see a case study. If you have a New Testament in front of you, go ahead. You might like to look back and forth at some of these. So 2.14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Now the word deeds right there is actually the same as the word works. And he says works, works, works. Aragon in Greek. Works, works, works. When you translate the New Testament, it becomes a problem because when you've got the repetition of the same noun again and again and again, what do you think translators want to do? They want to start putting in synonyms. But then you don't see that he's pounding. He's pounding at you here. If someone claims to have faith but has no works... Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but doesn't do anything to help their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not, if it's not accompanied by works, action works, is dead. Now, okay, so here's the case study. Here's the setup for this thing. So imagine you're going through life, and inside of the real world, you are confronted with a real need of some kind, but all you've got inside of your life is religious language. 
And so therefore, if someone comes to you with need, you say, oh, good, I will pray for you. How many times have I heard that? I will pray for you. That's nice. I guess that's nice. Don't you see I'm dying right now? I will pray for you. God bless you. The language that is used here is all based on this notion of go in peace, which is a cliche inside of Hebrew and Arabic language. It is the word shalom. And shalom can be used for hello, goodbye, and all of this. In, in, in Arabic, it's masalama, salam. So therefore, if somebody comes to you, you just simply say, shalom, peace. But it doesn't, what does it really mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's an empty thing. What is that? It is a failure of true faith. It is dead faith. So I think James would probably say, this person will never change the world. A person who behaves like that will never be able to represent Jesus effectively in this world. Okay, all right, so there's the setup. There is somebody with need that comes your way and you look at them and you just say, shalom, <laughs> I'll pray for you. James says, forget it. Now, somebody has a defense. Now look at verse 18. Somebody will say, okay, I get what you're saying. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. All right, now what some person does is they hear the first case study, and they say, all right, so I'm going to kill this one with a little cliche. Here's what it goes. It sounds weird, but here's how it looks. Look, I'm going to say to you, there are some people inside of this church who, who, who's, whose natural temperament, whose personality is to really study the scriptures and, and to know things well and, and do theology. Other people might say, well, look, my real capacity is to pray in earnest and to have this spiritual interior life, and it's really marvelous. And other people have the capacity to really take care of the poor and do all kinds of good works. So some people have the capacity for this and some people don't have the It all works out in the end. It all evens out. So James says, okay. So you're the guy, I guess, who knows all about the Bible and you're just relying on somebody else to do everything else and you think that is going to even out. James says, well, that's really good. So you become a theological specialist and you're exactly like a demon. So the first thing he says, fools. Now he says, you're all demonic fools. <laughs> this is great. How to lose friends. Okay, so therefore he says, okay, so if you just think that you're off the hook because you've got your own personal set of gifts, no, that's not gonna work. Okay, go to the next section. So the next section begins at verse 20, and you can see that now James has a case study. All right? So he says in verse 20, you foolish person, there it is again. I think he drank Red Bull just before he wrote this, but there it is. You foolish person, do you not want evidence that faith without works is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures were fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. 
All right, now stand back from that paragraph and just look at this. So James, in his argument, he's saying, look, you need a role model. You need somebody to model this after, and I'm going to give you Abraham. First of all, Abraham is a gigantic personality in Judaism. He is the great patriarch of our entire tribe. If you reach for Abraham as your model, you're reaching for the very, very top. In Jesus' day, when, um, when Romans and Greeks talked to Jews and they said, Abraham, who's this Abraham guy? Jews would actually say this. We have it in writing. They compared, so a, a Roman would get it. They, they, Abraham, we have Abraham. He's like your Hercules. It's really weird. I mean, Hercules, I know what he looks like because we have lots of mosaics about Hercules, but Abraham, he just kind of long beard, kind of thin. Anyway, so he's our Abraham Hercules. He's this great figure. So as soon as James says, well, Abraham has the model for us. Now, you remember what happened in Abraham's life. Abraham believed God when God created a relationship with him, and then Abraham demonstrated his faith by what he did. He took Isaac, his son, up onto a hill, and there was that near sacrifice that God interrupted. So therefore, faith activated something inside of Abraham. Faith comes alive when we do something with faith. Faith will change you when it gets legs and starts to move. Now, there are some very cool words inside of here that I want to point to you. Look at verse 22. He says, you see, faith and his actions were working together. I said to you, the Greek word for um, works is aragon. Do you mind if I give you some nerdy Greek words? Aragon, okay? Aragon. That means to work, okay? The word right here is only one word in Greek. It is soon aragon. Go ahead, say that with me. It is soon aragon. So tattoo worthy. Anyway, so soon aragon, whenever in English you have an S-Y-N at the beginning of a word, right? That is actually from the Greek, S-U-N. And that is a prefix, which means doing something together. So soon aragon means to work together. We get the word synergy from it. Is that cool or what? I dare you to explain that to somebody somewhere later today. Anyway, synergy comes from the work circuit. So therefore, he says, when faith and works are together, you have synergy. You have, another translation, you have collaboration. You have something happening together which makes your faith complete. Nice. That's what he says in verse 22. Okay. All right, so there's Abraham. He has demonstrated that his Faith had legs, and it moved in a constructive direction. Now look at verse 25, because James thinks that you need another analogy, another sort of scenario to understand how this works. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? So as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, wait a minute here. We have to just pause for a second. Remember I said to you that Abraham is like the Hercules of Jewish faith. He's way at the top. There's nobody higher than Abraham, just period. Moses doesn't even get close. It's Abraham, right? Now what he does is he reaches at the very bottom, a Gentile woman, a resident of Jericho, who's not even Jewish, Rahab. I mean, it's like this, right? 
When the Israelites were moving across the Jordan River and they came to Jericho, they sent in spies to check out if Jericho was something that they could defeat. Rahab was a woman inside the city who actually had a faith in the God of the Israelites. And so therefore, when the spies came to Jericho, she welcomed them in, acting on her faith in their God. And when they were nearly going to be captured, she let them down over a wall. Incredible. She saved these guys. So she was a woman who is to be identified not simply because she has a belief system. She is somebody to be identified because of her heroic activity. They were working together in synergy. There was a collaboration between belief and action. All right. So I think we get the point, James. We get it. There's got to be faith that has got to be connected to works. And all of this works together, and it's what completes us. If faith is a healthy tree, I'm looking at Paul now in Galatians 5. If faith is a healthy tree, a healthy tree always produces fruit. Exactly. And that's what James wants us to see. Now, I think, however, I think James has got some other things in his mind. Actually, I think he has some very big pastoral concerns. And let me go off on a tangent for a bit. James is worried about something. He's worried about a condition of heart that will harm us. It's a condition of heart that has been around for a very, very long time. And that's what you and I need to explore. But let me back into it just a little bit, and I think you'll get the idea pretty, pretty quick. Do you think, do you think that your temperament shapes or affects your spirituality? Yes or no? I think so. My temperament definitely shapes my personality, and there are lots of personalities out there, lots of temperaments, and so therefore, I expect there are different spiritualities. So lots of temperaments, lots of spiritualities, okay. So therefore, I should expect there are people with real differences here, and they will approach this issue differently. Now, in order for me to explain that, this to you, I, I, let me take, I'm, I'm going to do something I normally never do. I'm going to tell you something about my own personal story. Um, so who was I in junior high school and high school? I would have been that kid with that report card that his siblings didn't exactly like. When teachers handed back my homework in class, they smiled at me. Did they smile at you? Just wondering, just wondering. When I was in high school, I took AP everything just for fun. German, of course, why not? It's cool. Latin, nice, let's try that. Calculus, why not? Let's do it. I was a massive nerd, such a nerd. I read National Geographic when I was 10 years old and it wasn't just for the photographs. My native asset when I was younger was reason. It was all about argument, debate, ideas. I liked it because I was successful at it and you repeat the stuff you're good at. True enough, that was me, it was just crazy. So I became, as I was younger, high school, college, all of that, increasingly confident and increasingly annoying. 
What do you do with these people? You send them to grad school. You employ them at colleges. All of your professors are just like this. They're really annoying nerds. Give them a PhD. Then they will meet the tribe they belong to and they will cause less damage in the world. <laughs> My role models were all scholars. They were. I mean, I had a, the, the model, role model really for me was a man who's no longer living, his name named Bailey. And uh, he was just amazing to me. Um, I studied under him for a while, and the guy spoke five languages. Yeah, it was crazy. And four of them, nobody else spoke because they were dead languages. <laughs> Who does that kind of thing? My doctoral supervisor was a man named Professor I. Howard Marshall. Anyway, I was, I was working on my dissertation, and then I was walk, working with Marshall, and he said, oh, he said, there is a new book published in Rome that you really need to take a look at. So I thought, okay, all right, good. And I said, what's its title? And he gives me the title. And I said, was that written in Italian? Oh, no. Anyway, he says, yeah, it's in Italian. I go, okay. And then he says to me, a sentence I'll never forget. He says, don't you ever have the experience when you're reading a book that you forget what language you're in? <laughs> what? So I asked him, so you know Italian? You just read Italian, right? And he goes, well, yeah. I mean, it isn't hard. Once you've mastered Spanish and French, it just basically falls into place. So these are people that really just, you go, what, what do we do with these people? It really is strange. So I was this guy who grew up and was formed with, and, and knowing was everything. I could spot false teaching from a mile away. I was an orthodoxy sharpshooter. When somebody invited me to a Bible study, I came with a Greek New Testament. <laughs> like I said, early years were really annoying. Okay, so you can see here, I've got a circle on the screen right now, and I can say, look, there's one temperament type, right? So, you know, then, and some of you, how many of you guys might relate to this? How many of you are sort of like in my three, two, four? Okay, four of you out of the whole, good, that's good. Praise God. <laughs> then there is a second, there's a second circle that I need on the screen. Faith is not simply about what you know, but maybe faith is more about what you feel, Okay. Now, the system that I had going for me about knowledge and all of that, my Christian identity is about what you know. Anyway, all hit a screeching halt when I met my wife. Now, I've got to be very discreet here. So I was going to Fuller Theological Seminary at the time. Um, right next to Fuller was this really big church, and it had this fellowship group that had about two or 300 people in it, and they were all out of college and single, and of course, every smart guy went there for fellowship. Anyway, that's <laughs> how it worked. <clears throat> it was enthusiastically evangelical, and so therefore, the two of us were a really odd match. I mean, she was a passionate, articulate worship, and then here I was toting around an old Greek New Testament what an odd couple. In fact, before we got engaged, why am I telling you this? She goes to the pastor of this group and says, I'm really praying about, you know, Gary and I getting engaged. And his first response was, don't do it. <laughs> We've been married 40 years, I'm just saying. But things were different with her. Her name's Carol. Um, 
Carol, you know, certainty was certainly found in her heart. Now, she had wed that to a robust mind, but her heart was in the game. She actually cried sometimes when there was a worship song going. Very suspicious behavior. <laughs> her friends read the Bible differently. They sang songs holding their hands up in the air. Really bizarre. She would ask questions like, what is God saying to you now from the scriptures? I didn't care. I wanted to know what the Greek grammar said 2,000 years ago. That's what counts. She had an interior life. She had spiritual emotional capacity, a spirituality that thrived in those places, but didn't get angered in her mind. Actually, I was with her and a bunch of her friends one time at a church, you know, and I, I just was amazed. I was, they were all there, and they were all worshiping, and they were all kind of doing this, and they were like hand, looking, looking somewhere. <laughs> and I just, afterwards, I thought to myself, wow, I, do I have the capacity for that? Now, what you have here are two solid models that have been with us for a long time, and it is knowing and feeling. In other words, these two categories, I thought, were maybe all I needed, really. I mean, I already had the, the head thing down, but I thought, okay, this other part is what I really need. Faith as knowledge, I get that, but also there was faith as feeling, and I wanted to cultivate that. I knew both of them had their challenges, I mean, if you are in this knowledge category like I was and you began to have doubt, I know the solution, think harder. Yeah. You don't pray, you think. That's how you get out of it. And if you're one who is a feeler and you're experiencing despair, well, what is your solution? You go inward. How does that work out? I didn't know. But these were both interior exercises, the head and the heart. And I knew these were the two that the church had always kept together. These were the two ideas, actually, that Christians have always said for 2,000 years form the basis of our faith. Faith is knowing the right things. Faith is feeling the right things. Faith is orthodoxy. Faith is mysticism. Faith is reason. Faith is emotion. Now, James of Jerusalem, he knows this. He knows these choices and he says, uh, no, this is not all there is because we need to take a third step. So the next circle that I want to put on the screen is this. There seems to be another aspect, a minor voice, a minor key in this entire song in which we have overlooked. Faith is what you do. When I met Carol, I actually sort of had my categories kind of rearranged, and I thought, okay, I get that one. Um, but when I met another person in my life, again, my categories got rearranged, and here's his picture. Len Rogers is a Native American, and he will tell you that his background as a Native American and all of the difficulties of that story really shaped who he is. <clears throat> he is a hero in the Middle East. You've heard of Youth for Christ? He started Youth for Christ in the entire Middle East. You've heard of World Vision International? He started World, International, uh, World Vision International in the entire Middle East. It's amazing. 
He thought that those organizations were so large and doing such a good job, but they got too much profile, so he started his own organization called Venture International. It's really a remarkable thing. I, you guys may remember, I travel in the Middle East quite a bit. Again and again, it happens where I might be in some place like Cairo or Beirut or Amman, Jordan, and I will be meeting somebody new and they'll say, there's always this dance in Arab culture about who do you know? How do I place you? How do I locate you? And I know the secrets. If the guy is over 40 years old, I'll say, I'm a friend of Len. And they fall down and worship. <laughs> Len shaped people's lives. Egypt, Libya, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq. I can tell you so many stories about how he affected people, but I'm just going to tell you one because I think it's kind of fun. It's a cool story. One year, the Israelis did something that is so illegal. There was a protest in a particular city in, 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 in Palestine, in Israel. And so therefore, the Israeli army did not like that they were protesting. 20 men, all right, acting out. So they flew in a military helicopter, parked it right near the protest. The army grabbed 20 of these guys and threw them, crammed them into the helicopter and slammed the door. The chopper picked up and flew north to Lebanon, went to a hilltop in southern Lebanon and opened the door and shoved them all out in another country. So against international law. You cannot deport your problems that way. Then the helicopter took off and went back to Israel. And these 20 guys are standing there on a hilltop with winter about to come. Like, where are we? What just happened? They didn't even know they were in Lebanon. They couldn't figure it out. Okay. Len is working at a nonprofit in Beirut, Lebanon, about two hours north. Len hears this story. It's in all the media. And therefore, there's all kinds of reporters there taking pictures of these guys shivering on a hilltop. Len is in Beirut and he says, I got this. He goes out and gets a U-Haul truck, whatever they call it in Arabic, a U-Haul truck, and he stuffs it from his budget. He buys tents, blankets, food, I don't know, and cigarettes. <laughs> and he locks up the truck and he drives two hours and he gets there and he pops open the truck and he says, guys, make camp. And all these guys take all this stuff out and they make this camp. There were reporters there. He, he remembers a Japanese guy especially. And uh, this Japanese reporter said to him, what in the world? How, what are you doing this for? You're an American. What are you doing? You shouldn't, this is dangerous here. This is crazy. They set up the camp. The first night they had a fire that was just there in the middle. Very typically Arab thing. The tents around, fire right here. And then Len spent the night there. And therefore he sat at the fire. And a Muslim man, they were all Muslims, looked at Len and they were all listening and they said, Sir, you are a Christian, we are Muslims. Why did you do this? And Len, simple guy that he is, said, Because this was what Jesus would do, except the cigarettes. <laughs> so you can see that for Len, the definition of what it means to believe her. Is to, is, to, is to step into the world because they will know you by your actions, your activity. I have traveled with Len to North Africa, to Iraq, through Egypt. It's remarkable to see how he treats people. He doesn't preach, he acts. And that's how people are just come to the faith through him. So for Len, the measure of faith is knowing and feeling and doing and all of things work together. 
So therefore, I guess when I think about these three circles, I think to myself, look, they really need to go together. Faith is about your hearts and your head and your hands. That is the take home. Faith is about your head, your heart, and your hands. This is complete faith. This is James' word. This is the synergy that we're looking for, where where faith actually becomes complete. We are working in sync in all of those components. When we have that kind of faith, then suddenly we become an amazingly different person. We understand, we know what we believe, and that knowledge directs many of our decisions. We have to have that. We have feelings that nurture our souls and inspires our passions, giving us spiritual instincts. Yeah, I get that. But also we have works which actually are flowing from a healthy relationship with Christ. Do you see how three of those are all working together? Here's a secret. If you are a person who is feeling discouraged or you are a person who is experiencing doubt, Flee to activity, to action, to Christian charity, and it will be ama- you'll be amazed how it's going to help you. So when James says that faith without works is dead, what he is saying here is he's saying, check out your own spiritual personality. Without all three of these, you will be spiritually handicapped. So therefore, when a little opportunity, if this is something you have not really thought about much, take a baby step. When we talk about this cleanup in a week over at Ken O'Shea, you know, show up. Show up, not because you're going to have fun with your friends, because, but instead show up because you are deciding, I'm doing this in the name of Christ. If you're thinking about maybe helping out with Thanksgiving at that other opportunity, do it. Do it as a spiritual exercise because maybe you need to cultivate that one aspect of your life. So my only question for you, let's go back to the three circles if we could. My only question to you is this. Where are you inside of this diagram? Where are your natural inclinations? Now, I'll tell you myself. It's pretty simple. I've already told you I'm a stupid nerd from way back. Okay, I got that, all right? But here's the thing you probably don't know about me, that I am an activist. (laughs) I really am. I'm an activist. I can't wait to get arrested someday. Anyway, (laughs) that's just instinctive for me. It's just I've been involved in demonstrations, and I've had tear gas shot at me, the whole bang. It's really fun. Anyway, so that's me. That's the feeling side, not so much. So I look at this, this Venn diagram, and I say to myself, where do I need to grow Undoubtedly, in the experience, emotional experience, the deeper spiritual interior experience of encountering God. So my simple question for you is this. Are you growing? Are you growing? And do you know how to grow with intention? Have you opened the hood on your own life and looked at the engine that drives your spirituality And could it be that one of these three is really underdeveloped? This is what James means by being wise. The wise person understands that this kind of a faith 
is like a three-legged stool. It is stable. But anything less is not going to be stable at all. So figure out which one needs reinforcing. And when you figure that out, go after it with all of your energy. Amen? Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we do thank you for James and the uh, bold honesty that he brings into his letter. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to cultivate a faith anchored to a three-legged stool. Father, we want to be people who know you well, who can feel you inside of our worship, but also who know how to take our faith on the road. Lord, make us wise, make us strong, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.